My name's Justin. I'm a pessimist in a strange world, scouring Israel to find hope, inspiration, and goodness. Or, in other words, modern-day Lamed Vavnikim, 36 righteous souls who can show us the way. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. I had met her a few times. She's tiny. She smiles so big and she thinks even bigger. She has a reputation. Some could say she's extreme. Others could say she's not extreme enough. Whatever the case, whatever the stigma, I was eager to find out for myself. What drives one of the most prominent and perhaps youngest of activists for the rights of the Jews on the Temple Mount? What drives Ophir Dayan? Well, who is Ophir Dayan? At her core, once her op-ed ink dries, what drives this most interesting soul? I wanted to find out, and I have a podcast, so I thought I would take you along for the ride. This is my conversation with Ophir Dayan. Ofer Diane, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we just had great salads. Great salads. We are crisscross applesauce on the couch <laughs> at my apartment in Tel Aviv. So I want to talk to you about your activism, of course. But what is your earliest memory as a kid when you realized that you didn't want to be like the other boys and girls and that you actually like had this passion that I would assume you couldn't calm? I grew up in a very political household. My parents met during their political activism, they met at a party called the Tchia. Um, it no longer exists. They both worked under Geula Cohen, uh, was a Lechi fighter. My dad was the chairman of the party and my mom uh, was running against him. He won, whatever. But like that's how they met, uh, competing for the same position. My parents got married on the Temple Mount. Um, on the Temple Mount? Yes. Wow. And... You know, my entire life were very political since I was very, very young. It was always there at the dinner table. When I was two years old, two and a half, it was the 1996 elections. And there's like a famous story of me sitting at the voting booth in my small community of Male Shamron and telling people to vote for Likud um, <laughs> and vote for Bibi. You know, it was always there, that desire to influence how other people see the world. I joined Beitar, a Zionist youth movement uh, founded by Zev Jabotinsky when I was six. And ever since I knew that that's the path I want to take, um, that Israel is something that, let's say, occupies a huge part of my identity. And this is something I want to talk about. This is something I want to do. And I want to make everyone see how amazing Israel is and make them see Israel the way I see it. It was fine-tuned over the years. But yeah, I think ever since I was a kid, I knew that this is something that is really important for me. And, you know, when, when and I know it sounds kind of weird, but I had Barbies and I had dolls and I played. But in the end of the day, if I had to choose between attending Beitar and learning about, you know, Zionist ideology or playing dolls, I would probably pick Beitar. Yeah. 
and Betar was like active, like like yes. physically. Like, what would you do as a yes. kid there? So, um, unfortunately, today the movement is not as active as it was before. When I was, you know, a kid, I would go there once or twice a week, depends on the year, and we would learn. And I know it's it seems almost bizarre to say it today, but back then, even when I was six years old, we were taught about. Zionism. We were taught about all these concepts that enriched our lives with so much meaning. It's not the typical youth movement where you only have, you know, values like friendships and, you know, cooperation, which are super important. But in Beta, it was different. We learned about Greater Israel, <laughs> which even for... Was your home. It was my home. And, and you know, and, and today, even for, for adults, I'm not sure how many people know what Greater Israel actually means. Explain it. Explain um, it. So it's it's I mean it's not making a stand on it, but it's basically Israel in the borders of the British Mandate, which includes Transjordan and all of Israel and the and the Golan Heights, obviously, and Judea and Samaria. So so we were taught that, and we were taught why we need to love Israel with all our hearts. And we were taught about being a pioneer and we were taught about how you need to do everything for your country. If you need to fight, you need to fight. And if you need to be an advocate, you'd be an advocate. And if you need to be a worker in a manufacturing company, you do that and you do whatever it takes because that's what your country needs from you. Ask not what you can, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You I don't know? think you'd be in Beitar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's really interesting how universal these values are. But as a kid, for me, that was you know that was the meaning of my life back then. And it's funny to think of now that I don't know, as a ten years old, you know, I was walking the street and talking about you know Greater Israel and about why not buy a German eraser for school? <laughs> Basically, both my parents um, raised me to never buy a German product. It was just something I grew up with. And over the years, I was challenged with it because a lot of people said, you know, it's a new Germany and why don't you buy, you know, German? It was, I really remember that when I was in, the, in elementary school, that yellow um, glue that yeah. everyone had and the pants that everyone had. And I really wanted them, but I had to explain to myself as a kid why, you know, the dignity of the Jewish people and the remembrance of those who were murdered in the Holocaust uh, the six million Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust are more important than having that cool pen that I really wanted that all my friends had and, and the Puma shoes or the Adidas shoes that all my friends wore and I always had Nike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think from what I know of your story, it's kind of like you had the ideology, but it was it's very grand and it's very general in a way. And then you learn about Harbai, you learn about the Temple Mount. Tell our listeners who don't know what that is and tell me about your first time going there. So um, the Temple Mount is where both temples stood, where the Biden of Isaac took place. But all of these things happened there because of the foundation rock, which is the rock that, according to, to Jewish belief, the world stemmed from. And it's right behind the Kotel. Above it. Above yeah. it. Mount Moriah. It's the same place. There are um, a few names for, for that place. Uh, for Jews, it's the Temple Mount. And for me, you know, I said that my parents got married there, so it would have only made sense for me to, you know, visit there when I was young. But I actually never visited the Temple Mount until I was, I think, 21. 
Really? I was already an officer in the IDF. And one day I told my dad, you know, so weird you guys got married there and you never took me like that's so weird and it's not that i didn't grow up in a, like a politically involved household or like a very zionist household and it's like okay i've been to uh Hebron hundreds of times but i've never been to the temple mount and my dad said you know what let's go and one day we drove to jerusalem and ascended the temple mount uh my dad i think haven't been since his wedding or a few years after, so he also haven't been in a very long time, I, roughly 30 years. And we had no idea that things changed immensely since my parents got married there. Uh, we just ascended. We did not know that today Jews need to ascend separately from tourists. So we just ascended and, you know, the police assumed that we were tourists. So he went up and my dad, who is not a religious individual, pulled up a kippah from his pocket, like he does whenever he enters a holy place, and he put it on his head, and all of a sudden, eight policemen just, out of nowhere, just run straight to us and drag us out. So my first visit to the Temple Mount, I was there for like roughly 20 to 30 seconds. And I really didn't understand what ha what's happening, and they told my dad something like, uh, you had to declare that you have a Jewish artifact with you. And I was so naive at the time. And it's kind of funny to say, I emailed the <laughs> uh, Minister of Homeland Security in Israel. Interior, right? Uh, yeah, Gilad Erdan. Yeah. And I was like, I emailed him, I'm an officer in the IDF, and they just kicked me out. And what the hell? And I was sure it was like a one-time thing, and like a mess up of, you know, the police officers in that shift. But then I discovered it's not. So I started ascending from a very secular place. I felt that my rights are being taken away for no obvious reason, that Jews have less of, way less rights than other people there. They have to be escorted by police. They can only ascend the Temple Mount um, roughly five hours a day and only Sunday to Thursday, so no weekends. So I started ascending from that point, And later I became more emotionally connected to that place. Even as a secular person? Even as a secular person, I think it took a lot of time for me to understand what I feel about this place. I remember from the very first times I went up, I ascended to the mount, I felt something different that I haven't felt anywhere else. But it took me some time to understand what it was because I'm not religious. And the idea of holiness was kind of foreign to me at that time. But today, after, I don't know, like seven years since my first ascendance, I'm getting old, I can, I can quite confidently say that I think that what's holy to me is not necessarily higher entity or divinity. What's holy to me is Jewish peoplehood. The Temple Mount is where we became a people. This is the epitome of Jewish peoplehood. This is where both temples stood. It's where the Binding of Isaac took place. It's where Jews from all tribes, men and women and children, came to uh, worship their God together, but they also met each other. Um, it's the small things that make us a people. That's where they met. That's where they interacted. That was the only place where they could actually meet other Jews. And that's why I think today this, this place means so much to me. And do you think we're giving it away? I know we're giving it away. I mean, it's not even a question, in my opinion. In 1967, after we liberated yeah. Jerusalem, Moshe Dayan, who is a full disclosure, a very distant relative of mine. Really? Yes. 
uh, it's like my grandfather's second cousin, second degree cousin or something like that, wow. like super far. But I, I'm kind of, this is my redemption right now. <laughs> Working for the Temple Mount. Um, so he said, we don't need this Vatican. You know, we don't need this holy place um, because we don't want to manage it. He did not, I don't think he understood how important this place was for so many Jews because he was secular. And I, I can say for myself, it took me years to understand what this place means to me. So he, in, in a decision, you know, almost instantly, he decided to hand over control to the uh, Islamic Waqf, which is a Jordanian body entity uh, who controls all religious aspects, civil aspects of this compound. And they enforce stricter and stricter rules on Jews um, and tourists over the years. I mean, at first it was just, you know, certain visitation hours after the Intifada, uh, the second Intifada, the Temple Mount was closed for Jews for three full years. When it reopened, Jews could no longer visit during Shabbat. Now we are not allowed to even pray. And unlike, you know, what people think, it's not a written status quo agreement saying that we can't pray there. Um, but today, if a Jordanian uh, waqf guard saw me praying, they would point at me and an Israeli police officer would come and arrest me or detain me, which is to Has me absurd. Um, so I don't... Um, pray because as I said, I'm secular, but it happened to me when I sang a tikva. I sang the Israeli national anthem, which is my kind of prayer on the Temple Mount. And, and, and I was detained and removed from the Temple Mount for more than a month. Um, you went to like jail? Um, so fortunately, you had to call your no. parents to bail so, you out. <laughs> no. uh, but it happened to my friends. Yeah. Um, I will tell you a really absurd, absurd story. I don't know if you'll even believe me. So as I said, my parents got married there. Um, they had a chupa, they had a rabbi, they had the, the glass, everything, the guests, everything. And a few years back, my organization, Beadenu, brought a couple there who uh, were interested in getting married on the Temple Mount. No rabbi, no chupa, just, you know, the kiddushin, the ring part. And uh, they were detained by the police and spent their entire wedding day in the police station. A few weeks later, we brought another couple who wanted to do the same, uh, but this time the police in a heroic act managed to prevent the wedding and they uh, searched the pockets of the groom before he ascended and they discovered a ring and they arrested him before he dared, you know, marry his wife on the Temple Mount, which, which is to me absurd. You, we see how, you know, things deteriorated in the last 35 years. Yeah. I guess the biggest question I have for you is maybe it's the media, maybe it's Twitter, maybe it's biases that I don't even realize were imprinted within my head. But what do you say to the people who say that the, what you do and what you believe in and what your organization does is purely provocative art? So I've no surprise I've been told that a lot. We have been uh, used to thinking that if, you know, someone is annoyed by something, the, the side that is getting annoyed at is necessarily to blame. But let me frame it this way. If someone is so disturbed by my sheer presence in a place, I'm not the issue. They're the issue. I don't mind Muslims being on the Temple Mount. I don't mind them praying. I'm certain that 90% of Muslims don't mind me being on the Temple Mount and don't, don't mind me even praying there. The 10% or I don't know, you know, I'm just eyeballing a number, I don't know how, how many, but, but the people who 
are so motivated to engage in violence just because they see a human in a compound or they see a human praying, they're the issue and they are the one to be removed from that compound, not the person who's just visiting or praying. Yeah. When you hear people say that, do you see any truth to it? No, I think. And how do you, how do you like, because I struggle with this too. I want people to see the world how I see it. A hundred percent. But I think that the best comeback is just being honest and tell them how I see the Temple Mount and what it means to me. And when they understand how much this place means to me, they understand why it's so important for me to be there and why I wouldn't give up this right and why, you know, I, you and I belong to the first generations in 2000 years to have the privilege to be in the holiest place in Judaism under the sovereignty of a Jewish sovereign state and giving that privilege up is just insane to me. Like, I can't understand how someone, you know, would would choose not to take advantage of the privileges we have. 2,000 years, our ancestors, our forefathers and mothers prayed to go back to the Temple Mount. I love, you know, I work in Israeli. The building, Israeli yeah. building. Yeah, the Israeli building. But our forefathers and mothers did not pray for Tel Aviv. They prayed for the Temple Mount. They yearned to go back to Israel after 2,000 years for the Temple Mount. And to me, it's almost disrespectful to have the privilege after 2,000 years of diaspora, after 2,000 years that every morning, you know, our ancestors pray to go back to that spot and we can do it and we don't. Something that I found really illuminating was when I realized and learned that the Temple Mount is actually the undisputed holiest place for the Jews. Yes. In religious, secular Orthodox conservative reform in America, most people leave their Jewish education with the the misconception that the Kotel is the center of the Jewish world, not realizing that, uh, you know, 10 yards up and a little east <laughs> is actually where the action is. Yeah. And let me tell you that even in Israel, it's the same thing. I've been schooled in Israel for 12 years, elementary school, middle school, high school. And with the exception of the Six-Day War, I don't think I ever learned about the Temple Mountain. Even then, they quoted Motagul saying, the Temple Mount is in our hands, and showed us a picture of the paratroopers next to the Western Wall. Yeah. Um, so, so even in the Israeli education system, that's not, you know, the Temple Mount is not present. And I thought that's because I went to a secular school and yeah. I asked my partner, who grew up in the religious school system. And he said it was the same for them. He never heard about the Temple Mount or or actually, you know, was seriously taught about that. Yeah. And that's why as a part of Beadenu, the organization I'm, I'm working with, is so important for us to change that. We initiated a debate, a discussion in the uh, education committee in the Israeli Knesset where we talked about it where uh, we, uh, Sharon Eskel, the member of Knesset who's in charge of that committee, is heading that committee, she asked the police to show her how they can guarantee safety for school children who want to ascend with their teachers to the Temple Mount. And she asked the Ministry of Education to see how they can incorporate more material about the Temple Mount in the curricula, which is super important because I really believe that if, you know, as you said, if education is 
is bettered, if they learn about the Temple Mount, it's going to look completely different in 10 or 20 years from now. Yeah. And something I caught that I've been thinking about since the beginning was you say like ascend, which in Hebrew means has a lot more meaning and I think depth than it does in English. Can you talk about those two words and what you mean and what you feel when you say that word in Hebrew? Yeah. Um, so in Hebrew, ascend is la'alot, is to rise, to, to go someplace higher. And I think that's it has a dual meaning when it comes to the Temple Mount, because first of all, physically, you climb up, it's a mountain, and you go up the, uh, the bridge, the Mugrabi bridge. But the most important thing about making an ascendance is that you're spiritually and mentally in a different place. You're in a higher place. And as I said, it was really hard for me to grasp because I'm, as I said, I'm secular. And for me, this feeling that I got when I, when I still get after, you know, tens or hundreds of times that I have ascended, it's this feeling that you are in a place that is so unique and so special. Even if you don't believe in God, even if you are very secular, even if you are not Jewish, this is the place where the history of the world happened. The binding of Isaac, the temples, it's something that is so you know, central in the history of humankind. And you go there and I always have that feeling of being somewhere that is, you know, really being a part of history by being there. And you fear that we're giving up that history. Yeah, I, I fear. Look, it's it again has two two components to it. First of all, the sovereignty issue that we're letting other people define what we can and cannot do in our holiest place after 2000 years of exile and being removed from that place with the exception of the persistent Jewish presence here in the land of Israel during these 2000 years. But there's another issue to giving up that, that piece of history. And this is something we can't recreate. Sovereignty could be regained under certain conditions, but we see that there's a destruction of archeological artifacts on the Temple Mount in mass scales. You see how, for example, in the last 10 days of the Ramadan, uh, the, the Muslim fasting month, every year um, it's too offensive for Muslims to even see Jews on the Temple Mount during these last 10 days. So the last 10 days of the Ramadan, Jews are barred from even entering the Temple Mount, even in the five hours a day they're usually allowed. And it became a costume that every single year, these last 10 days, they ravage and break and destroy every stone and rock and anything that could be suspected to be an archaeological artifact. And this is the Jewish nation not doing its job. And not only for the Jewish people, the archaeological artifacts of the Temple Mount tell the story of humanity. And we are letting a political issue stop us from protecting them. And we see the absolute justified rage over destruction of archaeological artifacts and temples in other places in the world. And it's just not clear to me why the world is, is overlooking when it happens here. And it's more than overlooking. You could see UNESCO saying that Jews have no connection to the Temple Mount, which is it's just absurd that they call it a Temple Mount and then say that we have no connection to it because literally in the name. What <laughs> temple was there if not the Jewish one? Yeah. If there were to be kind of a phrase or a song or a, a poem or a mantra 
or verse of Talmud or whatever that, that sits in the back of your head on the hard days as an activist, on the easy days, on the inspiring days, but that through it all is with you. What is that phrase? In connection to the Temple Mount in general? Well, in connection to your identity, which is obviously very interwoven with that. So I'll give you two, one specific to the Temple Mount and one more general. Um, both of them from the same person, uh, from Zev Jabotinsky, who is my you know, spiritual guide in life. But in connection to the Temple Mount, I always recall a phrase that he wrote in one of his songs where he says, there they will have he talks about how the arab the son of nazareth the christian and my son the jew would live and happily ever after in the land of israel they will all be prosperous and they will all be safe and secure which is it's amazing to think that you know being on a temple mount and guaranteeing jewish rights on the temple mount does not take away from anyone else the vision that we see is everyone getting what they deserve and being respected in this place. And by the way, there is a, a very, you know, it's, it's almost an identical meaning in Jewish religious texts where they say, my home would be a place of prayer for all nations. That's my, my guiding motto when it comes to the Temple Mount, but more generally in life, I will say something, I will circle back to the place where it started. I learned in Beitau when I was six years old to love Israel no matter what. Right or wrong, my country. Uh, I'm sure you know that phrase. And Jabotinsky said a very beautiful saying. He said, It doesn't matter if it's cheap or expensive, if it's hard, if it's easy, if it's hot, if it's cold, it's, it's my country. And that's how I feel about Israel, even though I have a lot of anger in me about how we manage the Temple Mountain, about a lot of other things in Israel, it's still my country and I still love it. And everything I will do, I will do to better it. It's a good way to end. <laughs> Perfect. Way and to you end. will. Always being optimi yeah. optimistic. You have a long ride back home. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to my apartment for both salad and the podcast interview. <laughs> <laughs> both were very fun. <laughs> yeah, but next time pizza. <laughs> Ophir left. Her smile no longer lit up my living room. But don't worry, it was soon illuminated by her fiery tweets on her way home in the cab. I started the interview, trying to figure out who is Ophir Dayan. But it turns out, she knows exactly who she is. And for her, that's enough. And for the rest of us, I think we just need to sit back, relax, and watch this star blossom. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zayn. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>